Now the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, November 6th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of the Federal Drive, the White House has spoken on artificial intelligence. Well, now what? Plus, a new HHS Challenge Prize program seeks to improve local environmental justice. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of the Federal Drive. But first, the State Department adds training options for the Foreign Service, especially for newly hired diplomats. This as the State Department embarks on its biggest hiring surge in more than a decade. The Foreign Service is also adding mid-career training to expand expertise in cybersecurity and global health. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. That fanfare is the State Department unveiling a new wing of its Foreign Service Institute located across the river from its D.C. headquarters in Arlington, Virginia. It's a newer space than its headquarters meant to take on a new mission. The State Department under the Biden administration is broadening the scope of its diplomatic work. The department created the Bureau of Cyberspace and Digital Policy last year and the Bureau of Global Health Security and Diplomacy earlier this year. The department last year also stood up an Office of China Coordination, known informally among diplomats as China House, to centralize its strategic competition efforts. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says these aren't the traditional bread-and-butter issues that career diplomats have had to worry about. But he says the State Department needs experts in these fields because they come up more often in matters of geopolitics. A number of these areas are not what people most immediately think of when they think of the State Department. They haven't necessarily traditionally been part of what we do. But now, and for the foreseeable future, they're critical to our mission of looking out for our fellow citizens, advancing the interests of this country, advancing the values of this country. And it all has to start here and continue here at FSI to make sure that we are as strong as we possibly can be, both in traditional areas of diplomacy and in these new and emerging ones. The Foreign Service Institute also needs more space to accommodate just how many career diplomats are coming through its doors. Blinken says the new space is meant to accommodate the largest hiring surge the department has seen in more than a decade. We've significantly invested in what is the beating heart of American diplomacy, our workforce. Our Foreign Service, Civil Service, locally employed staff, contractors, and their family members are, simply put, our greatest asset. Joan Palaszczuk is the director of the Foreign Service Institute. She told reporters that the Institute is heading up a multi-year effort to transform not just what it teaches, but how it teaches. Palaszczuk says the Foreign Service is training more than 900 new Foreign Service officers each year. She says the department has seen a 20 to 30 percent growth in its Foreign Service and Civil Service workforces since 2020. So it's massive growth. And then the other piece of it is is making sure that we're building the opportunities for people to engage in career-long learning along the way, right? So it's not just a kind of one and done with the hiring surge, but how do we take advantage of the increase in our numbers? Blinken said a well-trained foreign service is essential to address the department's biggest challenges, including Israel's recent war with Hamas following terrorist attacks last month. Lincoln says Foreign Service personnel have been working around the clock under tremendous pressure to support the defense of Israel and secure the release of hostages held by Hamas. Foreign Service staff are also addressing the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, including diplomatic efforts to get civilians out of harm's way and ensuring aid trucks can enter the region. 
Over the past few weeks, amidst the terror, the violence, the suffering that's unfolding in the Middle East, we have seen how important a nimble, empowered diplomatic workforce is. Our teams, from Jerusalem to Cairo, from Anon to uh, Riyadh, in posts around the world, they've been working around the clock under tremendous pressure to shape our policy, to inform our understanding, to lead our diplomatic engagement with key partners, to advance key goals for the United States. FSI trains members of the Foreign Service and other federal personnel in dozens of languages and teaches them about the politics and economics of the countries and regions in which they will serve. FSI is now offering these courses in in-person and virtual formats. That's to ensure Foreign Service employees have access to training wherever they're based. The Institute trains about 70,000 Foreign Service personnel every year. The State Department is also rethinking its training for mid-career and leadership ranks. Last month, FSI and the State Department's Bureau of Global Talent Management rolled out its first-ever learning policy that's focused on career-long education beyond a diplomat's initial mandatory training. The department has also launched an inaugural core curriculum. Blinken says that addresses gaps in training for mid-career diplomats. Making sure that all of our teammates can succeed, not just those with a great mentor, or a strong personal network, as important as those are. To upskill its workforce, the department is investing in a training float. That's a concept that was first envisioned by former Secretary of State Colin Powell. He envisioned the continuous professional development of U.S. diplomats. In practice, the training float ensures a set number of employees undergo training at any given time without sacrificing frontline readiness at overseas posts. Palashik says the training float allows Foreign Service officers to keep training and learning new skills throughout their careers. I guess everyone always talks about the military training float, right, so that people can actually spend some time stepping away from the daily grind and thinking about big issues, learning new skill sets. And so we're really excited about the opportunities for long-term training that will come with that. Lincoln says the training float is critical to ensure the Foreign Service has the capacity it needs to advance its diplomatic mission. I think this is one of the best initiatives that we've undertaken, and we want to see it through. The department has also overhauled and expanded its leadership training curriculum for entry-level officers all the way up to chiefs of mission. So much of what we do every single day depends at a variety of levels on the quality, the effectiveness, the success of our management teams. And a lot of folks come to this mission, to this pursuit, not necessarily thinking of that. The department is also taking on efforts to improve retention. That includes boosting access to benefits, including eligibility for student loan repayment. Blinken said the State Department has also launched a retention unit to pinpoint why Foreign Service members leave the agency midway through their careers and to make improvements that might encourage them to stay. We've actually rolled it out to better understand and enhance our people's experience so that we win one of the most important competitions that we're engaged in, and that's the competition for talent. Lincoln says the State Department is also looking to become a more inclusive workplace. Early in his tenure, he appointed former Ambassador to Malta Gina Abercrombie Winstanley to serve as the department's first chief diversity and inclusion officer. Abercrombie Winstanley left the department in June, but during her tenure, she helped the department break down the demographics of its workforce across nearly every one of its offices. The department has also taken steps to ensure more transparency and fairness in promotion decisions. Blinken says those efforts are part of getting the best and brightest to work for the department. We have the immense benefit of being from the world's most diverse country. The idea that we would leave in any way on the sidelines 
that diversity simply shortchanges our foreign policy. It denies us different perspectives, different ideas, different ways of solving the problems that we have to solve. So this is vital to the strength of our institution. It's vital to America's interests. Jory Heckman, Federal News Network. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a new HHS Challenge Prize program seeks to improve local environmental justice. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Health and Human Services Department has launched a new challenge. It seeks what it calls community-level solutions for health inequities. Prizes will total a million dollars. And for how it works, we turn to the interim director of the HHS Office of Environmental Justice, Dr. Sharonda Buchanan. Dr. Buchanan, good to have you with us. Glad to be here. Thank you. Well, tell us what you're trying to achieve here with this Challenge Prize program. We really here at the Office of Environmental Justice want to be a resource to communities. For far too long, many disadvantaged communities and tribes have faced the brunt of environmental injustices, including harms to climate change. Many of your listeners may be aware of the Flint, Michigan water crisis. Um, These are the kinds of injustices and issues and harms that communities have been needing to actually address in their communities for a very, very long time. And so this Office of Environmental Justice that was established last year really want to be a resource to communities to help them to address these injustices. We say that climate change is an effect multiplier. It exacerbates many of these environmental burdens and environmental hazards that communities have been exposed to and had to contend with for a very long time. So the challenge is a chance for community and tribal voices to share their own approaches in improving public health, reducing pollution, and addressing local climate change impacts. Well, give us an example of like where climate change, say things are getting warmer and there's greater flood possibilities in some areas or whatever the case might be. Give us an example of how that might affect a particular area or a particular group of people more than others, say, in adjacent areas. I want to give you an example of Loudons County. It's a county in Alabama that have been plagued with water infrastructure problems. I mean, there's water sewage, et cetera, you know, sort of in backyards, in front yards. You know, when there are climate change issues and flooding issues, it will exacerbate something of that sort. So water infrastructure is very, very important, and it's important for folks to have clean water to actually sort of live in a health and equitable manner. I always like to say that health equity, as we pursue health equity and environmental justice, those two things are inextricably linked. So again, we want to hear from communities. Communities have their own challenges and they know some of their solutions to them. So we want to uplift those voices with this challenge. And how does the challenge work? That is, suppose let's take that same county as an example. They have problems where their freshwater system is in danger of being contaminated by their wastewater system, and that can be exacerbated by floods and so forth, which moves things around in a way you don't want to. What could be some possible solutions, and who locally might be able to do that? And if they felt they could, what would they do in relation to this particular challenge? The challenge actually has two phases. All eligible entries will be evaluated and separate prizes will be awarded for each of the two phases. So for phase one, it will focus on design of an innovative concept to enhance community-driven efforts to mitigate health disparities and, of course, to advance health equity or the development of an effective approach. 
you know, there's also going to be phase two, which consists of small scale testing or implementation of a well-developed approach for a community-led effort to mitigate, of course, the health disparities and advance health equity as well. I want to just sort of pause here and mention for your listeners that we just launched this challenge September 18, 2023, and we'll be receiving and taking in entries through January 30th, 2024. And for entries in phase two, that will begin in 2024. So we want participants, and this is open to individuals, community-based organizations, tribes, tribal organizations, local state governments. I mean, it is really open for-profit, non-profit communities, if you will, because they know their issues best. So we want to uplift those voices as they provide solutions. We are speaking with Dr. Sharonda Buchanan. She's Interim Director of the Office of Environmental Justice at the Health and Human Services Department. And some of the problems here, whether it's maybe buying air conditioners, you know, often impoverished areas suffer the heat worse than the wealthier areas simply because of lack of air conditioning. But fixing that is real money. I mean, the Congress appropriated a trillion dollars not long ago for infrastructure. Can the prize winners be eligible for funding at the grant level to actually carry out programs that are going to be a lot more expensive than the prize money will yield? So the challenge itself is a little bit different from what I think you are referring to as sort of our traditional way of funding communities. I mean, this is a way to really get into the hands of, like I said, individuals or community-based organizations or, you know, a group of entities, if you will, to really think about how they can sort of provide a solution to their own issues. We're hoping to accomplish, again, and find out sort of what the goals are of each of those communities, and they provide those solutions, if you will. It's one part of our multi-pronged approach to promoting health equity and environmental justice for all. I also want to say that, you know, in terms of meeting our goals here to be a resource to those communities, this is just one thing that we could do to really sort of help address those issues. You know, the traditional, I would say, sort of funding challenges are just that. Again, but this is a way to make it easier for communities to really sort of get the money into the hands of those that have solutions for themselves. And a million dollars won't go very far, and you're probably getting a lot of entries because the problems are just manifest all over the place. I mean, the country has a serious situation going here. Is this going to be one of many, do you think, or how do you see this long term? We here at the Office of Environmental Justice, we're small, but environmental justice is really a priority for us. It's a priority for, of course, the administration is a priority for our secretary uh, for health, as well as our assistant secretary. So we're using partnerships like this one to get the job done and get, again, funding into the hands of communities. I mentioned that we have a larger sort of prong approach to really make sure that we're addressing environmental justices. And this is just one part of our approach to doing that. And in looking at the entries that come in for funding and people that want to develop things. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of times here, we've talked about the water situation or the air conditioning situation. There have been communities that have been harmed by highways, bifurcating them in overhead ramps and roadways, this kind of thing. Are you discovering new areas of environmental injustice that maybe you didn't even know about that are hitting people? We want, again, this to be wide open. I mean, again, there may be some novel new tool 
that, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard about the Environmental Justice Index, the Climate and Justice Economic Screening Tool. Many communities are creating their own tools, et cetera. You know, we're looking for creation of new tools to help identify and help to be an answer to some of these solutions. It could be an already existing, I'm going to say, a tool or device or something that's already created that you can use in a new or novel way to address an environmental health injustice. So again, we're uh, we're open, we're excited that folks are already starting to think about, you know, what they might be able to provide in terms of an entry for this challenge. And so again, we're just uh, excited and looking forward to all of what's going to come in uh, to support community level solutions. It sounds like though it's an information gathering exercise almost for HHS, as well as a way of helping the communities that get this money and get these ideas established. We want to be able to find out what these solutions are, and we can share those across just the nation, if you will, across the department, across the nation. Um, there are many other opportunities, and really our goal is to uplift the ideas, share them nationally, and connect them to opportunities and resources across the federal government. One thing I want to say is that this challenge is in keeping with one of our core EJ principles. You know, when you think about environmental justice, you know, we want to make sure that we're meaningfully engaging with communities and working alongside of them to address environmental injustices. So that's what this office wants to do, again, to be a resource for those communities. And this challenge will best allow us to hear and learn from communities who have local solutions to local problems. And who does the evaluation, by the way, and what are the basic criteria? So we are going to have judges, if you will. Of course, participants cannot be judges or they cannot be related in any way, of course, to judges. And we're going to look outside of ourselves, outside of the department again, to have judges to come in and look at these. Of course, no conflict of interest. We're making this very simple. Entries uh, are going to be anywhere from three to six pages. I mean, none of this long, drawn out, you know, multifaceted pages or many pages. It's just a novel concept, a novel approach, a novel idea, the development of a novel tool to really think about how you address issues within your own communities or with a community that is near you or with a community that you know about that really will help to advance health equity and promote justice for these communities. So really then a participant could be a giant engineering firm that has big giant contracts with New York City, but maybe they've got a really innovative low cost way that they could help some small borough somewhere. Well, we'll be looking at everybody that submits an entry to the challenge. Again, we are looking and focused on, I'd say, community-led solutions, if you will. So that's how it works. How many awards and how much in the first round? And then what comes to those that make it to the second round? Great. As mentioned earlier, the challenge has two phases with, of course, a total prize of a million dollars. Phase one will focus on design of concept or development of approach and uh, up to 12 submissions may be selected to receive a prize of up to $25,000. Phase two will focus on small scale testing or implementation and up to 10 submissions may be selected for each to receive a minimal prize of $70,000. Dr. Sharonda Buchanan is Interim Director of the Office of Environmental Justice at Health and Human Services. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more about the challenge program at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress has trouble getting down to business. But first... 
A new HHS Challenge Prize program seeks to improve local environmental justice. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The recently released executive order on artificial intelligence from the Biden administration drew a lot of interest from the technology professionals and the interest groups. Everyone is glad the White House is focused on this issue. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with one expert observer. He's the executive director of the University of Arizona's Institute for Computation and Data-Enabled Insight, Barney McCabe. I was pleased to see uh, NIST's involvement. I think that I would like to see a clearer call for participation from universities and national laboratories. There's some part for the national laboratories in there. I think they can provide more input on a lot of the programs and areas. I think academia can put some more into it. I think that my biggest concern going into all of this is that the rate of change in these technologies, the rate of introduction of new technologies, and it's hard to imagine that any process can keep up with them effectively without having a lot more involvement. I, and I guess I would say, you know, one of the things I've pushed on is in, engaging sort of the professional societies that are relevant here. And there's a number of them. And so you got the Association for Computing Machinery and the IEEE and a number of those. And I think that, that I'd like to see some more explicit sort of how do you work with them? How do you work with the science board? Uh, and some of that. But in general, I think that they're trying to address the challenges coming up. So I guess I'm, I'm sort of on that fine tuning aspect of, of what what's there. Would you consider it a good start, though? Or Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, I think it, it, it's they're, they're trying to fill a void that needs to be filled. And so they're, they're starting on a process. I think going back to their the AI Bill of Rights, the blueprint for that. Going back to that, I think they're starting off with the right sort of process on that. Again, I, I could fine tune that and say I'd like to see some some tweaks added to that. But in general, this notion of what are our rights as citizens and communities and start from that and then go through how do we then build a process that's as apolitical as possible, right, that, that will focus on the technology and the challenges that are real in this process. Well, I want to go back to what you said about the rate of change. What what does that mean when it comes to artificial intelligence? Obviously, you know, an upgrade, but what does a rate of change look like? Uh, you know, is it just going to be moving in exponential pace, or is it going to be small and incremental? What what do you uh, what do you foresee? Exponential. That's 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 a real challenge. I think because and computing's been on this exponential, right? That that we've been with Moore's law, we've seen. So this continual increase in our ability to compute and bring the technology in. And what's happened with AI in particular, these sort of advanced information technologies, we started from having to have a lot of theory behind the tools that we would build to do, say, natural language processing or understanding of human communication. And with the new tools we have, it's just massive amounts of data that you can throw at it and the computing can come at it. And the real innovation here comes out of what body of work are you using? What what data do you have available to you? And how do you start to think about using that differently? And so there's no new generative techniques, right? The, the diffusion 
methods or the the other approaches that people are using, those are evolving very, very quickly, right? And new approaches come in. So I'd hate to predict what, what what's going to be the big thing after chat GPT within a year, but there will be something, right? And there will be something new that sort of shakes us in what the, what the capabilities are. And so that kind of rate of change coming at us means it's very hard. I mean, traditionally, when information technologies came in, they came in rather slowly. Right. And, and the next one, we had time to react to the change to our societies and our communities. We're not getting that time to, to wait and, and reflect and think back on it. We're speaking with Barney McCabe, who is a professor at the University of Arizona. And is the rate of change, is that the only challenge? I imagine it's not, but uh, that's obviously the biggest challenge. What are the other issues that regulators are going to have if they are going to try and implement some sort of standards when it comes to creating and utilizing artificial intelligence? Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, so the trade-off here seems to be the rate of change, new things coming in, how do you control them enough that they do minimal harm and yet allow innovation, right? Because the innovation coming out of these technologies is phenomenal, right? What, what we're able to do, what we're able to create and how we, how we're going to advance that process. It's pretty amazing. And so you get this new thing coming in, try it out, see how you can do with it, but try to minimize or at least regulate the harm that gets done, right? We've seen this happen before, right? Where the, the technologies come in to either automate the, a process on housing or, or applications for loans, right? And then we go back and look and, and find out there was bias in the data that was used to generate that. But the process of automating loans made it much easier, much faster to get a loan and, and to go on and do business, right? And so, that kind of challenge is, is the thing you face and, and we'll face that going forward as we as we see and partly the process that we use and the, and the approaches we come at for, for reviewing these technologies, that's going to need to change as well to keep up with the technological changes. So it almost sounds as if as a technology professional like yourself, you're welcoming the ethicists to start <laughs> voicing their opinions when it comes to artificial intelligence, no? I think that would be an understatement. Yes, it, it is. Embrace them, bring them in, bring the sociologists into this conversation, right? And I think this is really the opportunity we have as a society is to say, let's bring in the artists as well, right? And, and understand how this technology can be transformed to do good for societies and be aware and be watching and be ever present for the, the challenges that it brings in terms of the potential harms. That come in and, and and yeah, absolutely bring the SSS and bring the humanists and bring in all of the disciplines that have been sort of, I mean, at least financially, I would say marginalized, but I think uh, bring them into the table in the conversation. We all need to sort of participate in that. Going to ask you to get a little meta here. Uh, is the answer to regulating AI more AI itself, <laughs> having uh, software watch software? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's that. Yes, in, in fact, there there will be a process by yes that that there will be some parts of that that involve an AI actually looking over the product. I mean, yeah, it's something you can automate. We will automate it. So, what do you foresee as the next steps that need to happen here? Obviously, you know, some more voices that you talked about getting in on the process. But as you mentioned, a good start. But what would you like to see um, happen? You know, next. 
Yeah, so I guess from the executive order, it's going to be how does it roll out, right? And and what is specifically is the role of NIST in this? I think that, and I'll go back to what's the role of Department of Homeland Security? What's the role of the National Laboratories? What's the role of academia? What are the role of the professional societies? And as you bring out momentarily, is, is what are the role of the ethicists? How do we get them involved? And how do we get the conversation to where people sort of in the social human sciences understand the technology well enough to understand and, and project where the challenges are going to be before they come up? So I think it, it's mostly in how do we roll out this executive order? I think there's a, it's a great start. So the, the challenge is going to come in to... In you know, having worked at a national lab for a number of years, I can assure you that the agencies are going to be sort of pushing around to try and figure out where their place is in this. And I think that's that's possibly a good there should be a good outcome from that. That will be a conversation that's had in Washington as to who's responsible for what. Again, my my biggest concern there is that the academic institutions, the professional societies that may not have as strong a representation in that process could easily get moved to the side. And I think that would be a bad thing. I think that, that this is where you know, the social scientists, right? The historians come in and look back in the history of these technological challenges and changes, right? So we've been through these before. This is, I mean, we've been through these sort of industrial revolutions. And I would say we're really on an industrial revolution at this point. How do we manage that to make sure we you're not going to eliminate harm. People are going to get displaced from the jobs they're doing today. Things are going to happen in that. But we've got to be observant of that. And we'd probably be looking back at the previous industrial revolutions and seeing what happened there. So there's a book I'm currently reading is Blood in the Blood in the Machine. Uh, and it's a history of the uh, industrial revolution with automated weaving, right? And what happened there and sort of the processes and the political aspects. And that's going at the Luddites and pointing out that the Luddites weren't actually anti-technology. They were anti the way technology was being used to displace them from the jobs they had and the recognition that the, the technology would be part of that. And I think that's a conversation we need to be having is more broadly is it's not necessarily about the technology. The technology will come in and it will get advanced. How is it going to be used in our society? And I think, again, this is the executive order starts to address, I think, what are the critical issues, and we need to participate in how that's actually, how it's executed, how it comes to about. Professor Barney McCabe is executive director of the University of Arizona's Institute for Computation and Data-Enabled Insight, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com. Get your intelligence daily. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come... Congress has trouble getting down to regular business. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Congress, now equipped with a Speaker of the House anyway, is trying to do something about government funding for when the continuing resolution expires November 17th. The House is going about it, though, in a unique way. We get details from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And Mitchell, how are they going about it in the House? Well, the new House Speaker Mike Johnson has said he has gone through basically a hurricane at Category 5 whirlwind of all the things that he's got to do. And, of course, this is one of the top 
goals that he has to get through uh, in the next few weeks. And, of course, it was also what caused his predecessor, former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to lose his post because Republicans thought he was doing too much to reach across the aisle. So that's the balancing act that Mike Johnson has right now. And what he has said is it's interesting. He started out by saying that he wants to go for a short-term spending bill through January 15th. Now, that would have been a non-starter for Kevin McCarthy. And eventually, by saying that he wanted a short-term bill, that's what got him pushed out. But this, everyone knows right now, there's only two weeks left, or less than two weeks now, that there's something has to be done with a stopgap measure. So Mike Johnson is looking at that, but he's also trying to be sensitive to the needs of the hardliners within his Republican conference, he knows that a lot of them don't like having continuing resolutions. And what's interesting, he's, he floated this idea last week of a so-called laddered approach to a continuing resolution. And everybody said, well, what is that? And he tried to explain it. It's an idea that was apparently floated by Maryland Congressman Andy Harris, a member of the House Freedom Caucus, one of the more conservative members. And what it is, is it would allow lawmakers to essentially take each appropriations bill step by step. Uh, they would go through, as they are right now, going through the appropriations process because a lot of Republicans want to get back to regular order. However, it is being strongly criticized by Democrats who say that this really just only causes them to have a possibility of rolling government shutdown deadlines, that instead of having the one that we now have coming up on November 17th, we could potentially have several deadlines once we get through for one agency or a few agencies, then another one would be around the corner. So I think in this case, Speaker Johnson is just trying to listen to his conference, but I just don't think that that one is going to move forward. That does sound kind of arcane. You could say, well, HHS, you come to work. DHS, you stay home because we haven't done your bill yet. Right. Yeah. Everybody that uh, even the people that aren't partisan, the non-Democrats, just the, the budget experts just don't really see how that this could come together. Because, as you say, you would have to chip away and have certain departments reporting for work and other agencies not reporting to work. It just seems very, very difficult to see how that would practically come into being. All right. And then, you know, there was the bill in the House to pass the $14 billion for Israel. That was their good news. Their bad news, at least from the Democratic standpoint, was except we're taking it out of the IRS, which just seemed like something that is not going to sail. I think the president threatened to veto that. Right, exactly. And Senate Majority Leader uh, Chuck Schumer made it very clear that it is dead on arrival. But here again is a case where Speaker Johnson is trying to get his footing within that very conservative uh, conference that he has. And a lot of them were pushing for some kind of offset. A lot of people said this wasn't an offset, that it was basically going to create more of a deficit problem. And in fact, that was confirmed by the Congressional Budget Office, which came back with an estimate. They were requested to get this from the Democrats, but the CBO came back and said, well, if you cut $14 billion from the IRS, you're not going to be able to get more revenue from the IRS. And in fact, that's actually going to balloon the federal deficit by $12.5 billion. But Johnson said no matter, he needed a legislative victory. This was a victory for him, admittedly a short one, but it will allow him to get a little bit of leverage at least, at least to grab onto a little bit of that uh, legislative ledge, if you will, so that when they go to the Senate, they can say, well, we did pass a bill with money for Israel, 
Now they're going to have to go into a lot more detail related to Ukraine because many Republicans want more money for Ukraine in the Senate particularly. And then there's the issue of Taiwan. And then what Johnson said is he would like to somehow, he, he doesn't say that he will not go along with more Ukraine funding, which uh, some of the more conservative members of his conference don't want any money to go to Ukraine. He's leaving that open, but what he wants to do is tie it to more resources for the southern border, which, of course, is a big, big goal of Republicans. We're speaking with Mitchell Miller, Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP, and we've mentioned some military matters, and it looks like the pressure is increasing on Tommy Tuberville because of these military promotions. And golly, there's a lot of career military long-serving people that have been on hold for a long time now. Right. This is really coming to a head. And there was an extraordinary moment. You don't really see this that often anymore on the Senate floor. But Republicans against Republicans on the Senate floor last week, uh, you had Dan Sullivan, who's a Marine Corps member uh, from Alaska. You had Joni Ernst, who's an Army veteran, both of them on the floor blasting Tommy Tuberville, who, by the way, did not serve in the military, saying, you are really punishing these military personnel for something they have nothing to do with. And right now we're close to 370 military promotions that have been held up. And and what Joni Ernst was really upset about is that Tuberville had earlier indicated that if they brought these up individually, that they would actually get a vote. So they tried to bring them up by uh, unanimous consent. They brought more than 60 people up and they read their bios and talked about all the years of service they had. And each time Tommy Tuberville stood up and said he objected so that they couldn't get them through. So part of the reason that this is all pushing to the surface right now and that Republicans are really upset is because Democrats are proposing a change in procedure which would effectively allow them to take a lot of these promotion uh, nominations and put them in block and basically put them in a big group and pass them all at once. And Tuberville has just dug in and said he won't move on this, but a lot of other Republicans know that their patience is running out. And Democrats, if they can only get nine Republicans to join them, they could overcome the filibuster and that potentially could happen. A lot of Republican institutionalists don't like that idea of making a change in procedure, but this is really, really coming to a head now. Interesting. Well, maybe we'll see something break in the next couple of weeks or even this coming week. And also related to the military, the NDAA, they're still not reconciled on that particular one. And now there's a gambit to get uh, housing, child care help for military families in there. Yeah, this was one of the things that was still being worked on, even when there was the, still the speaker mess. And nobody was really in charge in the House. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, as you know, the NDAA usually has bipartisan support. And there's been this effort uh, in conference to try to get a lot of these improvements for housing and child care. Among the proposals is one that's uh, made by Colorado Democratic Congressman Jonah Goose. He's got a bill that would require the Defense Department to provide temporary housing to military families who've been on an on-base housing wait list for more than 10 days after arriving at a new base. This is a real problem. A lot of military personnel know about this. They're assigned to a new station, and then they get there, and there's nowhere to actually stay. So 
There's also an effort in the House to do more with affordable housing, be more responsive to complaints about housing facilities. That's been a big problem. I've talked to Senator Tim Kaine about that uh, with military facilities in Virginia. And there's legislation in the House that seeks to get a better grip on what kind of child care programs there are for various military personnel. The House version of the NDAA includes increased funding for military child care and, and tries to make it more affordable. So a lot of these things are still going on behind the scenes amidst all the sometimes chaotic headlines that we hear about coming out of Congress right now. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Thanks so much. You bet. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department has laid down a brand new data analytics and artificial intelligence strategy. The Pentagon wants to focus on agility and how it adopts AI so it keeps up with the evolving technology. DOD officials released the new strategy late last week on the heels of the White House executive order on AI. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric joins me with the details. Kirsten, tell us what's exactly in this new strategy. The strategy is meant to create a foundation for the adoption and usage of data, analytics, and AI across the Defense Department while promoting speed, delivery, learning, and responsible development. The AI strategy will help the DOD unify, synchronize, and scale AI across the enterprise, and it focuses on creating an environment for DOD leaders and personnel to effectively use AI data, and analytics. A key component is the agile adoption of data, analytics, and AI across the department to help leaders make better, faster decisions. There are also several goals outlined in the strategy, such as improved data sets and infrastructure, more partnerships with outside groups, and removing internal barriers to help the department keep pace with adopting advancing technologies. Specifically, the strategy focuses on DOD's AI hierarchy of needs with good data as a foundation to responsible AI usage. And this is followed by analytics and responsible AI at the top. The hierarchy is intended to... Another key element of the strategy is data shareability. So the DOD doesn't want data silos. Got it. And now they've had an AI strategy and they have a whole AI joint artificial intelligence center that's been going for some time. So safe to say this was a reboot of the strategy already in place because of that White House executive order that came out last week? Yes. So the DOD had a strategy, an AI strategy in 2018, which set up, like you said, Jake, although that wasn't released until 2019. But then when the chief digital and AI office was set up in last year, Jake was kind of subsumed into that. And the DOD also had a data strategy. So this new strategy released last week kind of combines and synthesizes those earlier strategies while taking the changing tech landscape and department needs into consideration. And as you mentioned, the White House released a new executive order on artificial intelligence early last week. And this new strategy comes a few days later. They released it on Thursday. You know, in the White House strategy tasked DOD with creating a pilot program to explore how it can use AI to protect the nation's national security systems and networks. So this new AI strategy kind of builds off of the momentum across government as well as in DOD. And, you know, this is one of the, the later but of many efforts of DOD with AI. So in August, 
the Defense Department established Task Force Lima, which is looking at the responsible usage of generative AI in the department by looking at use cases and implications of that. The DOD leaders had a press conference. They had a release of this formally. You attended. What were they saying about it in person? Yeah, so Deputy Secretary of Defense Kathleen Hicks said that DOD is really focused on responsibly adopting these technologies where it can add value to the military. Our task in DOD is to adopt these innovations wherever they can add the most military value. That's why we've been rapidly iterating and investing over the past two plus years to develop a more modernized, data-driven, and AI-empowered military now. In DOD, we always succeed through teamwork, and here we're fortunate to work closely with a strong network of partners in national labs, universities, the intelligence community, traditional defense industry, and also non-traditional companies in Silicon Valley and hubs of AI innovation all across the country. And Craig Martell, the department's chief digital and AI officer, emphasized the importance of having high-quality shareable data And he also said that the strategy is going to more so focus on best practices as opposed to a rigid plan and that the department will need to work with industry. Look, logically speaking, if you do not have high quality data, again, analytics is a fool's errand. If you do not have high quality data, AI is a fool's errand. So the the thing that has to get right logically first and I'll, again, I'll, pull, I'll, I'll explain that difference in a second, that has to get right logically first is we have to really focus on getting the data high quality and getting the data available and accessible. That was Craig Martell, the department's chief digital and AI officer. And it sounds like there's some urgency to what they're doing, almost like their replication strategy that Ms. Hicks rolled out a couple of months ago, and then we haven't heard another word about it, but she released it. So What's going on now? Is it the technology change? Is it the White House policy? Or is it maybe the world situation is demanding some agility and getting smarter about stuff? I think it's kind of a combination of all that. I mean, at the press conference, she talked about, you know, using Ukraine kind of as a good example of, you know, using technology smartly for defense purposes. But I also think, you know, across government, whether with the White House executive order on AI, as well as other DOD efforts that you're really kind of seeing this momentum, not only for, you know, technology like AI, but to, you know, use it effectively across government and in DOD and to really focus on how to use it creatively, other technologies that they could use that maybe they have to kind of figure out how they would use it. And kind of looking at Ukraine as an example of that. Sure. So the Jake is still in business and it just has a different kind of mandate now, fair to say? Yeah, it's under um, Craig Martell's office, so the chief digital and AI office. And so that's one component of his office. But yeah, they're still really kind of focusing on that. And do they also have a way of getting this done? Do they have a roadmap for actually accomplishing this philosophy or strategy that they laid out? Yeah, in the coming months, the Defense Department will also be releasing an implementation plan to go along with the new AI strategy, and that is supposed to focus on best practices. Federal News Network's Kirsten Eric, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tamman. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tamman. 